BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Professor Richard Wolf is with us, the economist, professor of economics, in fact, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his most recent, now available as an ebook as well. The sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. Democracyatwork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com, and uh, you can tweet him at profwolf with two fs. Dr. Wolf, welcome back to the program. I'm reading this article in the Fiscal Times in which Janet Yellen says that at the end of next month, the end of July, Congress is going to have to raise the debt ceiling. This is something that goes back to the 50s, as I recall, one of the periodic Republican hysterias about national debt. And if they fail to raise that debt ceiling, it will be, to use her word, this is the Treasury Secretary, catastrophic. Can you give us a kind of Econ 101? What is the debt ceiling? Why does it matter? How would it be catastrophic? And why are Republicans playing political games with this? Yes, it's a kind of recurring story in American history, particularly the last couple of decades. Okay, first of all, the debt ceiling. That is a limit put on by the Congress of the United States, uh, limiting the total amount of money that the federal government can borrow. And remember that the federal government borrows when its objective of spending money involves more money than it raises in taxes. Uh, Just like if you and I want to spend more than we earn in our income, we'd have to borrow it. Well, the same with the government. It has to borrow. Uh, The unusual thing is it mostly borrows Uh, from American companies and American individuals, and indeed from other branches of the American government, that is the Treasury, which keeps these records. In order for the country to work, it steadily runs deficits. It has been doing that for many, many decades. In the last few years, particularly the 20 years of this century, it's been running much larger deficits because our economy is in deep trouble and the government is called upon to bail out the private capitalist sector over and over again, particularly in the years 2000, 2008, and 2020, because those were the years of the crashes uh, that have been big in this century. And so the government has been borrowing like crazy, and no more than particularly in the last, oh, I would say, a few months uh, since the COVID, because it made everything worse. To put a limit on it is to say that the government can't continue to borrow. Why is it catastrophic? Because the only way the government can pay back all the people it borrowed from in the past is if it continues to borrow. The alternative would be to tax the American people to pay back all those that we owe, and that would involve a tax increase that would bring the American economy to a screeching halt. So that's why it's catastrophic to imagine that that limit that has to be regularly extended and last time was extended two years ago or suspended one way or the other if you make that limit apply if you literally limit the government's ability to borrow money then it would have to use taxes to repay the debt and indeed to do anything else it does and we, we, we don't have an economy that could survive that. that. That's, by the way, an index of to what extent the private capitalist system of the United States is now literally on life support from the government. 
any notion that we have a private system that is somehow independent of or superior to or free from the government is laughable. And this is another illustration of how desperate this society has become on the government's largesse, and in this case, the government's ability to borrow. Why do the Republicans threaten? Because, of course, if a collapse happened, and it happened under a Democratic president, it might provide an opportunity for the Republicans to suggest somehow that it's a Democrat's fault and or to suggest that they could do better. That's also laughable since they would have exactly the same problem and would have had exactly the same demand on the Congress to lift the limit. But, you know, they might sneak into power that way by playing that kind of game. And that's probably why they're tempted to do so. So and and if the debt ceiling does not get raised, what's the catastrophe that uh, Janet Yellen is warning about? Well, the first thing that would happen is an enormous number of people who have in their possession, and I'm talking here about foreign governments, I'm talking about banks, insurance companies, wealthy people, the kind of folks who lend to the federal government, they would begin to worry that the government cannot pay them back. Suppose you're sitting on a bond, you lent to the government 20 years ago, it's due to be paid off, I don't know, in September of this year. You read in the newspaper that they can't borrow any more money, and how are they going to pay you back? How are they going to give you back the $10 billion that they owe you? Normally, they would simply go in and borrow it again, pay off whoever wants to be paid off, and replace them with the new borrowing. If you block the new borrowing, all those people sitting on those bonds right now that are coming due over the next month or or the next year, it doesn't matter, would suddenly be worried about their assets, and they would sell those bonds. And they might take sell them for a very low price, and that would jack up interest rates. And there goes the American economy, because it's dependent on interest rates virtually near zero, and all of that would be out the window. Now, my recollection is the uh, half a dozen times or so since the 90s when uh, Newt Gingrich pioneered this as a club to beat Democrats up with, uh, this idea of not raising the debt ceiling or shutting down the government as a consequence of that, um, that the government has had to say, well, if we can't raise the debt ceiling, we not only can't pay back our bondholders, our treasury holders, but we also can't pay our social security checks or we can't pay our government employees or we're going to have to shut down the national parks. Um, it, it, I'm assuming that sort of thing would also be in the works if, if the Republicans uh, try to block any effort to raise the debt ceiling? Absolutely. If, if they do it, if the government can't borrow, then it would have to either raise taxes to, to pay off whatever it has to buy or it has to declare a default on that on those debts that it has and either of those options would catastrophically damage the american economy mm-hmm. and the the republicans are not going to do it i wouldn't guess it's usually a bluff it's designed to give them some talking points and get them some headlines because if they actually did it the risk would be that the democrats could could show the people that the catastrophe was not their fault but the fault of the republicans and that may might get backfire on them so in the end my guess is this is political theater and it will not go uh, to the last step um, and I think what, what Mr. Gingrich and the Republicans learned when they've done it in the past is that the net outcome for them hasn't been so good. Yeah. Um, uh, one last question here. Uh, the Axios newsletter is reporting that uh, share back, buybacks are about to roar into being as a, as a big thing again. Uh, this is giant corporations buying their own stock off the stock market. Um, in, in a minute or two, can you summarize why, the, and, and this is a practice that was illegal before the Reagan administration, um, can you summarize why corporations do this and what it means to the average person? Yes, there are basically <clears throat> two reasons that corporations do it. Number one, it's the most profitable thing for them to do with their money. 
the economy is in such bad shape that producing more goods and services is not an option. The people of this country don't have the wages and can no longer borrow to buy what these companies could produce if they invested their money. So they can't find a profitable outlet the normal way. So here's option number two, buy back your own stock. And why is that attractive? Because when you do that, you retire a bunch of stock that used to be held by the public that you can now erase because you bought them back, which means that whatever the profits your company earns, when you divide it by the number of shares outstanding, there's more profits for each remaining shareholder because you have bought a back the stocks from other shareholders. So it looks good for those who remain. And there is a third reason, ugly but there. Many, many corporations now pay their executives with shares. And if you can drive up the value of the shares in the market by buying back your own, it's a way for the executive to use the money of the company to boost the prices of the shares and thereby get a bigger pay package because their pay is linked to the stock value uh, on the stock market. It's an ugly self-serving game, but it is absolutely part of the story. Sounds like almost like a Ponzi scheme. Yep. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Professor Richard Wolf, always great talking with you, sir. Thank you so much for dropping by again today. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. We will be back with more of the news of the day. What do we do about vaccine passports? What do we do about the Delta variant? Are you having uh, any successful conversations with your Trump hole friends or relations or co-workers about, about this issue? This is the Tom Hartman program. Are you reluctant to go out to restaurants or go on vacation as long as, you know, there's Trump holes out there who are who are, uh, you know, refusing to wear a mask and refusing to get vaccinated? Hillary in Bernie, Texas. Hey, Hillary, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on Free Speech. Hey. Okay, so I have some data for you just about the um, vaccines in children Mm -hmm. and when they think they're going to be authorized. So the Pfizer is authorized for uh, age 12 and above. And by mid-September, they're expected to uh, file for their amendment to the emergency use authorization for 5 to 11-year-olds. Hmm. And then come the end of November, starting at six months of age. Oh, that's great. So, okay, so Moderna is now testing in children, and they have 100% efficacy with two shots tested in 2,500 children. That's 12 to 17-year-olds. Pfizer was also reporting 100% efficacy in children after two doses. So it sounds like by next year, if we can get past the the Trump fear of vaccine, if we can get past the QAnon conspiracy theories about, you know, it, it magnetizes you so that your silverware will stick to your face. If we can get past this insanity that we might eventually get to the point where it's like polio or measles, where it's something that, you know, rarely, well, probably measles is a better example because polio is pretty much wiped out. But where it rarely pops up, and when it does, it's always among an unvaccinated population pocket. That's the goal, but I think you've got another group of people that aren't just the Trumpian anti-vaxxers. There's a huge contingent of lazy people who don't, or people who work during the day, who will only get the vaccine if somebody is standing at the front door of, at Walmart with a syringe. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I think well, there's a, you know, they're going to win the Darwin people. Award, Hillary. Pardon? They're going to win the Darwin Award. You know the Darwin Award that we that we get that they used to give this award out to people who who died doing something insanely stupid. Oh yeah. You know the the well you got weeded out of the gene pool. I mean it's uh, it's sad and it's it's cynical to say it. I get it. And plus you know it's only a you know one two three percent death rate. But the problem is. You know, one third of men who have had symptomatic COVID, this is a a message that needs to be repeated thousands of times. One third of men who have had symptomatic COVID after that have trouble getting an erection. Uh, About half of people who have had symptomatic COVID have some long COVID symptoms. And about a third of them have serious long-term COVID symptoms beyond just erectile dysfunction. None of these things are getting anything close to the publicity I think they should be getting. And I think that that would help people. Uh, you're in Bernie, Texas. Is that rural Texas, Hillary? 
Yes, it's north of San Antonio. It's between San Antonio and Austin, but so, it's, it's rural. So what's and, it like um, there? Well, okay, so like I had plumbers come last week who definitely were not Republican. They were just lazy. And I'm like, yeah. do you want to get it? And they're like, yeah, we just haven't gotten around to it. And the thing with parents are also, I don't know if you've ever looked at that vaccine schedule that the CDC produces for what they suggest that mm-hmm parents get their children of course it's left up to states to enforce it which is but parents are afraid of getting their kids you know another vaccine but yeah it's the whole autism vaccine scare thing um yeah i have some stuff i know you're going i have some stuff on the delta variant that how quickly it's up by mid-august it's expected to be the dominant strain in four to six weeks It'll wow. be 50% of all infections. Wow. So, yeah, I've seen numbers similar to that. Hey, Hillary, i got to run, but thank you very much. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club, and today we're reading from ADD Success Stories, a guide for fulfillment to fulfillment for families with attention deficit disorder. And it's really individuals as well. And mostly the book is well over 100 individual stories about ways that people have learned how to be successful in life and uh, just sharing them with others. A lot of these came from when I ran the ADD Forum on CompuServe, and a lot of these are, you know, other people's stories from CompuServe. Some of them from when Louise was coaching, when we were running the community for ADHD kids, all kinds of stuff. So, this is from Chapter Five, Page Forty Seven, titled "Learning How to Handle Criticism and Self-Criticism," and it opens with a quote from Benjamin Disraeli in 1860. He said, "It's much easier to be critical than to be correct." One of the most common and recurring strategies of successful hunters—that's people with ADD tell about is how they've learned to handle criticism. A successful ADD entrepreneur tells the story of how devastated he was in a high school presentation that he'd spent the better part of two months on for English class. He read dozens of books, dug out arcane facts, sifted through quotes and stories and information, all to find what he thought was the absolutely perfect summary to make his point. With great enthusiasm, he pulled an all-nighter, writing the final paper, and marched off to school the next day with his head high and the smell of academic victory in his nostrils. At 2 o'clock, he walked into his English classroom and marched up to the teacher's desk, a paper in his hand. Here it is, he said, and handed it to her with a dramatic flourish. She took one glance at it, leaned over the side of the desk, and dropped it into the wastebasket. You didn't double spaces, she said. When are you going to learn to read the directions? Stunned, he began to protest to tell her about the hours of work he'd done. She shook her head as if shaking his words out of her ears and interrupted him, saying, You have to learn how to do things right. This will be a good lesson for you. I'm giving you an F for that paper, and there's no appeal because today was the last day you could hand it in. He went home that night and at the ripe old age of 14 cried himself to sleep. I learned two important lessons from that experience, he told me 20 years later. The first was that I needed to slow down to force myself to read directions. In that regard, it was probably a positive experience. But it also almost destroyed my commitment to her, to the class, to the school, and to any future academic achievement. And that was where I learned my second and most important lesson. When you fall down, stand back up, dust yourself off, and carry on. That sounds easy, I said, but how do you do it? How do you go from being angry about her, from blaming her, or for that matter, from blaming yourself? I have a picture in my mind, he said, of a man who's walking down a dusty rural road. He trips on a stone and falls face first into the dirt. 
Then he reaches over to the side of the road, grabs a stick, and begins to beat himself over the head with a stick, yelling at himself about how stupid he was to trip and fall. Between these comments, he's cursing the stone for being there and blaming it for tripping him. That's absurd, isn't it? But that's just what many people do. And when I imagine that picture and I see how absurd it is to wallow in self-blame, I feel empowered to get on with my life. End of quote. Unfortunately, the absurd behavior that this entrepreneur described is just what so many people do, particularly those who've spent their lives feeling like they've never quite lived up to their potential. They respond to criticism first by blaming the critic and then by beating themselves up. They rationalize the former by taking a debating position, finding flaws in the criticism or the critic, and then rationalize the latter by telling themselves that if they beat themselves up emotionally, they'll learn from the experience. In real life, it rarely works that way. People who pursue this strategy instead just end up bruised and ineffectual, paralyzed by fear of criticism or by the damage they do to themselves in the name of lesson learning. So how can we best handle criticism? And then we go through some more stories. The first step is to examine the criticism to see if there's any truth in it. Usually there is some truth to criticism, and if we can separate out the kernel of truth from the emotional baggage associated with it, we could often learn something useful. For example, when my first book on ADD was published, one reviewer wrote a scathing and sarcastic commentary on it. While much of the commentary was off-base or factually inaccurate, he did point out one real deficiency. My premise of Hunters and Farmers was based on anthropology, but I hadn't gotten the endorsement of any anthropologists or cited any anthropological texts in my bibliography. So, deciding that he had a point, I sought out people with the requisite knowledge of hunting and farming culture. I first found Will Crinan, MD, who, while not an anthropologist, was one of the few medical doctors in the world to have spent years of his career as the physician to an indigenous hunting society, one of the last of the Native American tribes in Canada. Each year, every year, he followed them with his small plane as they made their annual 1,000-mile trek with the caribou they hunted. He told me that when he first arrived, he found that the previous doctor had diagnosed 100% of their children with ADD and put the entire school on Ritalin. That, for me, was a pretty good validation of the hunter-farmer theory. Then I met cultural anthropologist Jabe Fikes, Ph.D., who wrote the famous books debunking Carlos Castaneda. Dr. Fikes obtains his Ph.D. by studying the few remaining Native American hunting societies of the American Southwest and Northern Mexico. After reading my book, he wrote a ringing endorsement of it, saying that his experience taught him that hunting and agricultural societies were profoundly different and that the individuals who make them up are profoundly different. There's a startlingly high percentage of what we would call ADD among some of the members of Native hunting tribes. So that criticism of my book, as sarcastic and stinging as it was, made the book better. Anyhow, the book is ADD Success Stories, A Guide to Fulfillment for Families with Attention Deficit Disorder. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. There's a lot going on. Rudy Giuliani's law license was suspended. This is interesting. He's the bar of New York suspended his law license for lying to courts and the American people about the election. Now, lying to courts is a crime. You, you know, a lawyer can go to jail for that. So, I, you know, I, I don't know if anybody specifically is trying to prosecute him or not, but, you know, one can hope. General Milley just humiliated Matt Gates. Matt Gates uh, asked him about, you know, uh, uh, the woke military, and are you guys, uh, you know, getting into this whole critical race theory thing? And, and, and Milley, uh, his, his response was just absolutely brilliant. He was, you know, I'm a white guy and I want to know about white rage. You know, the, this is the military, you know, the military academy is a university. We, we want to know the history of this country. We don't want to cover it up. We've, you know, you've got a diverse military. It's important to understand people's life experiences, where they came from, how they got here, and things like that. So, you know, it's actually very, very important stuff. Meanwhile, we've got this very sad state of affairs with this Delta variant starting to rip through the United States. It's gone from 10% to 30%. And... You know, I've shared my experiences with you, what I'm seeing. And the fact that I'm just at this point in time, you know, I, a week ago, I was actually, maybe two weeks ago, I was thinking, okay, Louise, let's, uh, I mean, you know, we, we went to, there's a restaurant down the road from us. 
that has a great outdoor area and the tables are six feet apart and it's it's you know it's on the Columbia River there's you know big breeze blowing it's actually over on the Vancouver side it's a Mexican restaurant and you know no chance of getting anything from anybody and so we went there and had uh, in fact twice now we've gone there and had a nice lunch but there's some great restaurants in this town I mean you know Portland Oregon is literally one of the best restaurant towns in America we've got a food scene here that's mind-boggling and there's a vegan Indian restaurant in town and there's a bunch of gluten-free restaurants <laughs> things that, where I can eat stuff and and it's like you know hey I'd love to but you know you just don't when there's the door is closed the windows are closed and there's walls around you and so you're breathing other people's air whether you want to or not and this Delta variant is now traveling around the country and there was a big outbreak in one of our jails here that was in the Oregonian yesterday so they haven't done the DNA testing out to find out if it's a Delta variant but the way it just like bang ripped through this jail and everybody in the jail has been offered the vaccine now inmates can turn it down and a lot of them do but you know I'm a tough guy I don't need no vaccine or whatever maybe the Trump holes I don't know but the virus just ripped through the jail and, and it's not a good thing so are you taking precautions again? Do you think that we're gonna have to shut down again as a country? And might it be driven this time? I mean, this is really interesting speculation. You've got, for example, in Missouri right now, two hospital chains that are tweeting, and I included the embedded links to the tweets and the articles about them in the article that I wrote that's over at hartmanreport.com. And I mean, literally two different hospital chains in Missouri where you've got some counties with a 15% vaccination rate and the entire state is at you know below 40%. You got two hospital chains whose CEOs are begging Fox News to cover this story and are saying our ICUs are starting to fill up fast. And one of them pointed out that 60% of the people who are in the ICU right now are under 40 years old. That's the Delta variant. The Delta variant, you think you're 20, you know, hey, I'm, I'm only 23 years old. I'm immune. I'm, you know, I'm healthy. I got nothing to worry about. I, you know, I run two miles a day. Now, this variant will take you down if you are young. So how do you think this is going to play out? Do you think it's possible that the red states will suddenly wake up? Or is this going to be Trump's second massacre? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And if it is Trump's second massacre, how does that affect American politics? Are the Republicans going to figure out a way to blame it on Joe Biden? Tom Hartman here with you. So uh, Lady for Liberty uh, over on Twitter tweets, uh, Hey, Tom, you asked the question, how to vax non-vaxxers? Lady for Liberty says, I've succeeded with 10 people fully vaccinated. And here's what I did. And, and then Lady Liberty has a, it's a four tweet thread. I, I just liked it. So you can probably find it fairly easily. Number one, keep door open for conversations, right? Don't make it a battle, make it a conversation. Number two, ask why not? Why don't you want to get vaccinated? And then shut up and listen. People's fears are real, even when they're based on false information. Number three, share what your fears were and how you overcame them. Like, you know, hey, I, I was concerned about a new vaccine, but, you know, 2.79 billion people have been vaccinated now, so I'm not so worried anymore. It's like, you know, it's, people say, well, I have an immune system, and so did everybody who died, or pretty much, you know, the millions of people who died. Our immune systems evolved, but because this species jumped into our species, our bodies can't keep up. Uh, what about somebody who's scared about the side effects? Well, most people don't get the side effects. You share your own story. Another point that Lady for Liberty made, general idea, address fears with facts. Be gentle with kindness. Be very clear. You're having barbecue parties and birthdays. Only vaxxed people are allowed. For example, you know, just Sarah say this. She also adds, I also use other countries as examples. We didn't stay home in mass, so here we are. Only choice, vax or stay home. And finally, emotional blackmail. She says, I let them know, I love you. I don't want you to die. You can stop this. You don't want the long-term effects. Brilliant stuff. All brilliant stuff. So, Linda in Moore Park, California. Hey, Linda. Uh, what's on your mind today? Hey. Hi, Tom. Um, 
a super host for Airbnb, mm-hmm. and I was recently in touch with them. I rent out two rooms in my house, and Airbnb told me that their policy is that I'm not allowed to ask for vaccination if people have been vaccinated or not. Oh, no. Really? What are you going to do about yeah. that? Well, what I'd like to do is have everybody that listens to you to call Airbnb and tell them to change their policy. Yeah. Because uh, there's no way, A, that I can have people in my house that aren't vaccinated, that I'm sharing a bathroom and kitchens with. And air. Uh, And I don't think anybody else would like to rent a room if they know the person next to them in the room. Also, Airbnb is also not vaccinated. Yeah, this is that's that's crazy. I mean, that you should, you know, uh, retail businesses have broad latitude outside of racial discrimination, uh, you know, have broad latitude in in deciding under what circumstances they will serve people. You know, the famous no shoes, no shirt, no service sign. That's incredible. I'm astonished. And and California also has a policy that any business can refuse uh, people if they're not vaccinated. Right. And you're in California? Yeah, you're in 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 Rural Park. So have you tried going back to them and saying, in this state it's legal, I'm going to do it anyway? They have no way so far on their website sign up for me to question people. That's the problem. Can you include it in your description of the property? You must be vaccinated. And prove uh, it yeah, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to try to do that and see if uh, they'll accept that. Yeah. Um, but I do. I would like everybody to use his Airbnb to realize that. You know. Yeah. They need well, to have, I, I have not used them, but I have their app and I have an account with them because there was a time when I thought I was going to use them, and so I got ready. So certainly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think I can send them some feedback. That's fascinating. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, appreciate it. Good luck. I, uh, phew, that's a tough one. Don in Sheridan, Iowa. Hey, Don, what's up? Hey, hi, Tom. Good talking with you. I listen to you every day. Thank now, you. my own opinion is with these people that don't want to get vaccinated. Uh, there's plenty of knowledge out there, plenty of stuff going on. And I'm just to the point now that I don't care anymore. You don't want to be vaccinated. You do your own thing and I'll do mine. You're not going to be around me. But what happens What happens when you sit down in a restaurant and the person sitting three feet away from you at the next table has no, the Delta variant, even if you're vaccinated, it can still and you, you, know, you can still wind up in the hospital. Tom, the chances of getting the, the because the vaccine is so good. Yeah. Yes, there is a chance. But I will take a chance having been vaccinated, Yeah, having been that small. So but these people that want to go around unvaccinated, they have a very good chance of getting it. Time will get them. Yeah. They will learn. I think you know? so. I, you know, there's either going to be a great awakening or a great dying. You know, it's going to be one it, of them or, or, or perhaps it'll be both to, in the reverse order. Great dying followed by it, a great awakening. It, it, they're going to get bit in the ass. Fox News and all these people went out telling them, yeah. just like in Great Britain, who was 67 yeah. percent. And now look at what they have for the, you know, the variant going through there. That's right. And it, it, you can't get away from it. Yeah. That's yeah. all there is to it. Yeah, you so, can't. Hey, we believe it. Science got us where we are in this country. I'm sick of the Trumpers. I'm sick of people that are, you know, wrong is right and right and is wrong. I'm just tired of it. It was yeah. time for us to move on. We got to get something going in the Republican Party. I don't know what we're going to do to you. What do you uh, think? Of, what I, can they I think do? we're going to vote them the hell out. Is you know, and 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 they know that, and that's why they're desperately trying. This is why they're trying to throw three hundred thousand black people off the voting rolls in Georgia right now. Um, you know, because they they see what's coming. They see what's coming. They know that the American people are sick and tired of this crap. Uh, it, it, I mean, in the last eight presidential elections, the Republican has only won the majority of the votes once, and that was George H.W. Bush. I mean, that's it, right? And, and um, go ahead. You are the only bright spot that you I get. You know, if I want real news, I have to go to your little TV free speech, and I listen to a lot of them. I listen to a lot of them. Okay, well, Don, I hear thank it you. on free. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Thank you for being you. Yeah, thank, thank you for you your kind much. words, Don. It's great to hear from you, and and thank you for watching Free Speech. Kate in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Hey, Kate, Delta variant. Hi, Tom. I hope I can remember everything, but the last caller, I missed the first part of what he was saying. But I agree, and I do think that uh, this Delta variant, it's a horrible thing. And I almost didn't get on, but maybe 
it's time. It's it's the right time in the time of humankind that if people refuse to be educated and they refuse to make a reasonable, rational choice, then maybe the thinking, and I'm by thinking I mean the uh, Confederate lost cause thinking, mm-hmm. the white supremacy thinking, all of that needs to, that thinking needs to die out. And, and it is. If it can't be remedied with education or reason or experience, then maybe the only way for the thinking to die out is for the body to die out. Yeah. Two, two thoughts I on that, I don't want to say that they deserve this. That I mean, we already lost 600,000 people mm-hmm. because and there was no vaccine. Not but to mention, you know, 7, 8, 10 million people in America who are probably mm-hmm. going to be permanently disabled in, in some cases so severely they can't even work or have a life um, because mm-hmm. of long COVID. I mean, you, you just had this actress who, who committed suicide because of long COVID in her 40s, as I recall. Right. Um, I mean, this is terrible, terrible mm-hmm. stuff. But Kate, for example, uh, Louise and I, uh, we, we moved recently, but where we used to live, we had some neighbors who were, you know, just buried right up to their eyeballs in local right wing talk radio. And, and they were like, oh, experimental, I'm not going to, you know, but they're wonderful people, right? They're just, it's, it's not that they're refusing to be educated. It's they're being educated by people who are lying to them for political purposes and being paid to do it. I know, I know. And it's not their fault. But it's not our fault either. Oh, yeah. I get what it. I'm saying is there there are so many. We're at the time in human existence. We're in the sixth great extinction. Yeah. Extinction. Yeah. That if if this kind of thinking isn't un- put under control, And if it could be controlled logically or educationally, that would be great. But But if not, it's going to take us all down. Kate, I'm sorry, we're out of time, but well said. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. Back with your calls in just a moment. Stick around. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back, William in Enid, Oklahoma. Hey, William, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, good to talk to you. I listen to your show every day. You do a great job. Thank you. I think the problem with the vaccine and I'm a black man and I think it's the ignorance and the selfishness because I was never worried about me because I'm 62 years old. I got vaccinated because of the people around me. I don't want to give something to someone else. Mm-hmm. And then you got black people saying, well, you know, they're going to, they're trying to get rid of us. So they're giving us the vaccine. And I asked them, how can you take medicine every day, medical research, medical science, and you take medicine every day, 
but now you don't trust medical research. Right. And, you know, I mean, they made this and everybody's taking it. And so I think what we have to do to fix that, I think the restaurants, I think it should be a law. I don't think you should be able to fly, ride a bus, do anything, go to a restaurant without a medical, without a vaccination card. Yeah, I agree. that's, I'm calling that for way. vaccine passports nationwide. I think I, I yeah, I, I heard you. And and I would think that most businesses that aren't you know just you know totally you know up the the backside of Fox News, uh, most business owners uh, would want the same thing. Exactly, exactly, because you want everybody in there to be vaccinated. And then I want to talk to you about something else. Uh, our country is getting torn apart. For one thing. The Democrats and Republicans can't agree on anything. And another thing, that we need to come together as a nation and pursue all the problems of the world together. But, and, but, but William, respectfully, we are. You know, if you poll the American public, you find, you know, 70, 80, in some cases, 90 percent support for the policies that the Democratic Party is promoting, everything from you know exactly. raising taxes on rich people to rebuilding our infrastructure to, to high-speed, you know, locally owned broadband to, to, to Medicare for all, to doing away with student debt, all of those things poll above 70% at the very least and some as high as 90%. And who opposes them? Not the American people, not even Republican right. voters. It's 50 senators, 50 Republican senators who are all in the pocket of, of, uh, you know, a small handful of right wing billionaires. Absolutely. And us as American people has to have to figure out. And like you said, the the Democrats are doing a great job, but we had to figure out a way to come together. So I came up with a movement called the art movement, and it's called all races together. And we pursue all the all the interests of the world together. And I think that's the way that we move the country forward. Hmm. All races As together. I like that. All race, it's the art movement, yeah. A-R-T, all yeah. races together. And I, yeah. I've got it registered and everything. So I think if we all come together and we all think one way and we all pursue the problems of the, the pandemic, the getting people back to work, getting, uh, you know, instead of just individual groups like black lives matter was an awareness group it needed to be done the Mm -hmm. asians uh it all needs to be done but now we need a new agenda we need an agenda that brings the country back together as one so remember that the art movement i will i will william thank you thanks for sharing that good talking to you thanks for watching free speech thank you tom yep we're here on the tom Hartman program helping you win the water cooler wars on the true people's meeting With the uh, Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from Healing ADD. Richard Bandler, the founder of Neurolinguistic Programming, NLP, wrote the foreword for this book. And it's basically a book on NLP as applied to people with ADHD. But it's actually a pretty, pretty good book on NLP, which is actually how I originally wrote it. So we're on Chapter 8, on page 80, Reconstructing the Past. Uh, different types of memories, regardless of how anchored in reality or fantasy they may be, are stored in our brains in different ways. These forms of storage involve the five sensory modalities, sight, smell, hearing, taste, and feeling, and the subtle gradations of each sense, such as color, brightness, or contrast for the visual modality, for example. These gradations are referred to as sub-modalities. This is true for both adults and children. One of the ways our brain organizes information is according to the way it's stored. Our senses pick up something in the outside world. Say we see an insect fly by. That's an objective thing that we've seen. However, before that image makes its way to our conscious brain, it's processed by other parts of the mind and tweaked and tuned. If it's a bug that frightens us, perhaps a wasp, then the mind sees it as a bigger object and in sharper contrast than it really is. Other objects in the picture, the background, buildings, grass, whatever, become more distant, dull, perhaps even less colorful. The mind may increase the volume of the sound associated with the wasp and also attach a feeling to the image probably a variation on what we might interpret as fear or panic, a feeling felt perhaps in the pit of the stomach or the trembling of the hands. So here's a quick list of some of the submodalities that we commonly use to experience reality and store memory. In the visual field, how do you remember things visually? Color of black and white, contrast, size, bordered or not, moving or still, brightness, graininess, distance from us, 
associated or disassociated? In other words, do we see the scene as we saw it or do we see ourselves in it? Focus, detail, texture, perspective, dimensionality is a flatter 3D, proportion. That's the visual field. In, in auditory, loudness, tonality, distance, pitch, melody, inflection, location, tempo, duration. Gustatory, uh, salty, sweet, spicy, musty, bitter, familiar, delicate. Olfactory, strong, faint, intermittent, familiar, unique, musty, moist, damp, mildewy. Kinesthetic, the feeling. Hard, soft, cool, warm, sharp, electric, intensity, duration, speed, location. Now, here's the amazing part. If you know what modalities and submodalities your mind uses to store a particular type of memory, happy, sad, hopeful, afraid, neutral, whatever kind of memory it is, then you can adjust the memories you have of the past to change their emotional feel. For example, think of something, a memory of something that you did in the recent past, such as brushing your teeth last night. Mentally list the qualities of the submodalities. Your list might look something like mine. I see a still picture in black and white without a lot of contrast or detail. Associated, I see the mirror in the sink, but not myself. No border, 3D, about two feet square, about 20 feet away from me. I can hear the sound of the water running and taste the mint of the toothpaste. If I concentrate on it, I can remember or imagine remembering the feeling of the toothbrush on my gum and the smell of the toothpaste. The feelings I associate with the memory are pretty neutral. Boredom might be the best way to describe it. It's something I do every night. Now imagine a control panel just below the image or wherever you'd like it to be, with levers and dials that you can use to change the various submodalities. Reach out and change a few of the submodalities and see how things change. When I move the picture from black and white to color, I suddenly feel curious and interested in the process of brushing my teeth. It seems fascinating. If I turn up the volume, I become uneasy. As I increase the mint taste, I feel more awake. Nobody knows why this works the way it does. One theory is that the brain stores information holographically rather than digitally so that the brain sees its own storage capacity as a three-dimensional space. Because we experience the world through our senses, it makes sense that we could organize the mechanism for storing the information about our experience of the world along sensory lines as well. When something is put into a particular space, it acquires a sensory nature of that space, since sensory signals are how we experience the world. So when a memory is put into the boring category in our brain, it becomes, in my case, everybody's different, but it becomes, for me, black and white still pictures and all the other submodalities I described before. When the submodalities are adjusted and the pictures are turned into a color movie, it doesn't just change the memory. It actually causes us to interconnect with or slide to a different storage place, a physical different storage space in my holographic brain. There's also a concept known as a critical submodality. That's the submodality which has the ability to shift others, probably the primary hook into the place in the brain hologram where the memory is stored. As you're going through the various submodalities, changing each one a bit in one way or another, turning up or down the brightness, the volume, you'll notice that there's generally one particular one. It could be anything from volume to contrast to smell to brightness, anything. It causes the entire picture to change and creates a sudden shift in the feelings associated with that memory. That submodality shift is the critical submodality. And once you know what your critical submodalities are, you can do this process much quicker. One of the most common and most powerful critical submodalities is location. When you move a picture from where it is, for example, in front and to the right, about four feet away, to some other place, for example, in front and slightly over your eyes, only a foot away, it often changes dramatically its impact. So it goes from there to talk about how to take memories that bother you or that haunt you even and transform them into things that are simply just who cares memories. The book is Healing ADD, Simple Exercises That Will Change Your Daily Life. Tom Harvin here with you. On the line with us is the uh, journalist for The Atlantic and The New Yorker and The New York Times, the author of numerous books, his latest Last Best Hope, an essay on the revival of America. George Packer. George, this is a brilliant book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. Your idea in the Equal America chapter of the smart and just versus the free and real, I want to get into, but I'd, I'd like to start first with your notion of the four Americas. Tell us Tell us about the four Americas that you're writing about here. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Well, after writing about the year 2020, this year of shocks and of defeat, I stepped back to find out how did we become so divided? And it's not just between red and blue, although that's an ob- the obvious division, but red and blue themselves are divided. On one side, we have 
what I call free America, that's Reagan's America. That's you get the government out of the way. Uh, government isn't the solution. It's the problem. Cut my taxes, get rid of regulations and set me free so that I can uh, make my own fate in life. This is and the Charles Koch the prom- America, really. It's a libertarian America, right. exactly. And and it promised widespread prosperity through trickle-down. It, ne- it never happened. It failed. So free America was a powerful political uh, narrative that promised a lot and influenced us Im- immensely, but that never delivered on its promises to a wide uh, number of Americans. It, it, it delivered for a very narrow slice of the country. Smart America is educated, professional America, the meritocrats, those who believe that the right schools, the right credentials, the right professions are the key to a good life and a successful life, and that parents can then pass on the, the, the advantages of being meritocrats to their children, who will then be, earn their own way into that blessed group. The problem with smart America, and I think of that as sort of Bill Clinton's America and really having its heyday in the 90s, smart America promised a meritocracy, but it really created an aristocracy. You're born a meritocrat. Your ticket is punched depending on who your parents are, where you grew up, what schools you go to, and who you know. And so it really isn't any longer merit that gets you to the promised land. It's birth. And that is the definition of aristocracy. So it has also failed. This, the third and fourth narratives are rebellions against the failures of the first two. On the red side is real America, a phrase Sarah Palin used in, two, in the 2008 campaign. That's the America of the white Christian heartland. It's nationalist, it's nativist, and it sees White Christians who work with their hands or who don't have college degrees as the true Americans and the the educated elites, the coastal liberals, people live in cities, people who come from other countries. And in many cases, people who are not white are not real Americans. And so it has an exclusive um, cast to it and a, a resentful cast. The smart Americans are bitterly resented, I think, by real America. And finally, just America, which is a generational rebellion of young, mainly millennials, against the promises of their liberal parents who said, work hard and go to the right schools and do your homework and write that beautiful college application essay and your future is set. When, in fact, that began to seem like a hollow life and a false idea. And so the social justice movement of the last six, seven years, I date it to 2014 as the beginning of Just America, um, is a rebellion against a, the, the promise of incremental improvement of the more perfect union. Instead, it says we're a caste system. We have groups that oppress other groups, always have, probably always will. And the, the most we can do is continually fight against that in the name of justice. So that's also a rebellious narrative that has tried to break up the complacency of of the earlier ones. Those are the four Americas that I lay out in Last Best Hope. And you do so brilliantly. I lived in Germany for a year. I have friends who live in Sweden. One of my very best friends lives in Israel, uh, well, one in Israel and another in Australia. Actually, the one in Australia was the one I was thinking of, who I talk with on Skype, you know, at least once a month. And those countries are all experiencing similar, uh, it's not a bifurcate, a quadra, quadra, there's, a, I don't know if there's a word for it, it's splitting into quarters. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, you know, Australia may be even a little ahead of us on this in some regards, uh, certainly a huge nativist, you know, streak there and, and racism is a big deal. It is growing in Sweden. It is growing in Germany. And, and falling along these same four lines, is this just the fate of countries to kind of fall into these uh, divisions that seem to derive out of and in reaction to essentially ethno-statism? Or is there something unique about the United States in this regard? Well, I've heard from people in those countries as well who've said you've described us. I think the, the bottom line, what unites all of these advanced democracies is two 
forces that have been at work throughout my adult life. One is an increasingly diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-everything democracy. That's what the United States has become more and more over the last 40 or 50 years with the immigration laws changing in the 60s to include people from all over the world and with black freedom in the civil rights movement with other oppressed groups gaining their rights. At the same time, we have the end of the industrial age and the end of work that provided not just a good living, but dignity and status, even if you didn't have a college degree. Now we have an economy, the information economy or the knowledge economy, in which everything depends on having a college degree. I think those two forces have destroyed a sense of shared citizenship that is always fragile in this country, but that waxes and wanes and has set groups against each other in a competition for resources, for status, um, in a zero-sum game where there's winners and losers in all four narratives um, because of inequality in a word is at the heart of the the vitriol, the resentment, and the conflict that we see every day in America. And I think it's something like that is happening in, in other advanced democracies as well. With, without trying to uh, fall into the uh, all too facile trap of, uh, you know, well, you know, what's the easy solution here? The kind of salvationist ideology. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm wondering what broadly or specifically you would suggest we do about this with this knowledge? Well, Last Best Hope has a, a narrative that, that it proposes in place of these four. I call it equal America. And I use that word because equality has been the kind of unifying passion of Americans. It isn't a reality. It never has been. But as a desire, as something Americans want for themselves. But to isn't be that as the point at which, at, at which the, the entire Republican Party and all the right wing billionaires who support them start screaming, you're talking about Karl Marx and socialism. <laughs> well, what do we mean by equality? I'm quoting Tocqueville, the great French writer who saw America maybe more clearly. Yeah, maybe. And it still applies if you read Democracy in America. It's still true. He said the passion for equality is what distinguishes Americans from the Europeans of, of the aristocratic system. What he meant was not equal results. It was not a government big enough and, and intrusive enough to make sure every outcome was equal. And we've never had that in this country. And very few Americans have ever really push for that. But equal status as citizens, equal opportunities economically and socially, educationally, which really does mean radical change with kindergarten and even before that, it would take some radical social policy to create, to bring us closer to equal America. Fascinating. Joe Biden, for example, is giving, you know, giving a talk promoting his infrastructure bill. And one of his sales pitches is, you know, not only is it build back America better, and not only does it make us more resilient with regard to climate change and, you know, et cetera, but that it's going to raise up a brand new middle class. It's gonna bring, you know, all these good union jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Is that the sort of thing that, I mean, to, to get down to brass tacks here, to get down to policy that you're talking about? We have about a minute left. Yeah, I think he's in the right direction. Biden who isn't really a creature of any of my four narratives. He really is a throwback to the New Deal, to Roosevelt and Truman, which to me is closer to equal America than we are today. Biden, his policies, the way he thinks, the way he believes in labor, in workers, and in the right of every American to have a decent life. Yeah, there's something both simple and powerful about that idea. And I think it's at the heart of his domestic policy. I don't know if he can get there. I don't know if the best legislation in the world could get us there. And I certainly know that the Republicans in Congress are going to fight like hell to prevent it. But I, I, it's, to me, it's heartening that our president is now talking in a way that can really begin to make us equal Americans. The book is Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal by George Packer. A brilliant analysis and uh, a hopeful prognosis and you know, a future. Uh, George Packer. George, thanks so much for dropping by today. My pleasure. Great speaking with you.
It's the Tom Hartman program, the place where despair is not an option. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.